Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Scripture Chronicles podcast. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan. Joining me today is Corey Howitt. Corey, how's it going today? About to head into a new book, the book of Deuteronomy. Super exciting times. We're four books down um, onto number five. So what we are doing today, like Corey just alluded to, is we're starting in to a new book, the book of Deuteronomy. That means that we're leaving behind the book of Numbers. And so if you don't know how this podcast works, it is a cumulative podcast, meaning that each episode builds on itself. That being said, the first episode in a new book is the best place to start out if you don't have the time to go back and listen to everything else that has happened prior to this. That being said, if you do have the time, I would highly recommend going and listening to the episodes that you missed prior to this one to get a full picture of the story. Again, the thesis of this podcast is that the Bible is a story that it should be read as a single unified story that ultimately points to Jesus. And because of that, we're going through the Bible in real time, showcasing the story as it unfolds. One other thing I want to point out that I don't always point out, but do like to hear in there, and that is the fact that this is not Dylan and Corey's commentary on the Bible. This is not designed for you guys to take what Dylan and Corey have to say and run with that and just think that that is the end-all, be-all interpretation. Instead, this podcast is designed to get you guys interested in looking at the Bible as a story for yourself. Go back into the text, read through it on your own time, and uh, instead of just taking our word for it, figure it out for yourself. If you have uh, a thought, think we're wrong on something or anything like that, feel free to call us out on it. Email us at the email address, scripturechronicles at gmail.com. We love that sort of thing. Again, we're not claiming that our interpretation is the final end to it. Instead, we want you guys to read this stuff for yourself. So with that, let's go ahead and dive into today's episode. I think that's enough preamble. We got a lot to cover today. What we're going to theoretically try to do is maybe see if we can get from Deuteronomy chapter 1 all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 11. We're going to see if we can get there. However, if if we're long-winded, as Corey usually is, and I, I am too, unfortunately, uh, we may only get to chapter 6. So either way, let's see if we can get there. Let's go ahead and start out with it. We're starting into a new book, meaning that there isn't going to be a recap. You can go back and listen to the whole cumulative episode on numbers if you want the recap on numbers. Let's dive into Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy being a real interesting book in the respect that the first couple chapters of it are going to sound very familiar. If you have been with us since, say, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, and even Numbers, you know, a lot of the stuff that Deuteronomy touches on has already been covered in some of these other books. And interestingly, that's how it got its Greek name. It's not the name that it had originally in Hebrew, but the Greek name Deuteronomy is two Greek words, Deuteros, Namos, Namos being the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Torah, means just law, and Deuteros means two. So second law. Basically, it's, hey, this sounds the same as something we already went over, so let's call it the second law. And that's basically what we got going on here. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Corey to give us kind of the introduction to the book. Corey. Yes. So the Hebrew name for Deuteronomy is these words. And so in the book of these words, there's 
essentially three parts to the structure. The first 11 chapters, the reason why we're going to try and take these all together, it's one big section. It's all pretty similar in content, but Moses' opening words are just going to play off of the title of this book. And in this, we're going to define what Torah is. It uses this Hebrew word Torah a lot, which is often translated law. And if you have a good idea of what Torah means, then maybe Deuteronomy is a good name for the book, but a lot of people don't. And Deuteronomy ends up being this really weird sounding book. It's like, why do they need a second law, list of commands? So with that, we'll get more clarity today on Torah. I'm not going to give too much away on that. The middle section is really big from chapters 12 through 26. Lots of different commandments. Commandments we've already seen, but nonetheless, more commandments. And then Moses' final words, the last section from chapters 27 through 34. But going into the opening section, chapters 1 through 11. Deuteronomy, like I just mentioned, it literally means second law. Like the last book, it, we talked about the title of Numbers. It's such a disservice to the content of the book. So going back to the whole name idea, Deuteronomy, instead of it just having us think about laws, these list of commands, like, oh, it's just a second list of commands. A lot of them are repeats. So why even read this book? I would like from the set out of this episode, I don't know, have us try and take a different view of Deuteronomy. And I would say Deuteronomy is in many ways teaching wisdom through recounting of earlier events and commands, all the while encouraging the people to covenant faithfulness. And so that's kind of what Deuteronomy is doing. It's synopsis of the whole book. And so I'd say that Deuteronomy is kind of our, our first taste of a book of biblical wisdom. Now, there's no like genre in the Bible that's wisdom literature specifically, because it's just so hard to nail down. But something that Dr. Tim Mackey has said before is that wisdom literature in the Bible essentially boils down to some book of the Bible referencing the Torah, either a story or a command, and making some twist to it or some expansion on what was said and expecting you, the reader, to know the original law and the expansion taking place or to know the original law or story and know the twist taking place. And yeah, that sounds really weird in theory, but once we get to a place, it'll be really clear as to what I mean there. And so let's go ahead and jump into the book of Deuteronomy. The first verse of Deuteronomy matches up really well to the last verse of Numbers. So if you listen to the second to last episode in the series on Numbers, we ended on this point. So the very, very last verse of Numbers talks about, you know, the people of Israel being on this side of the Jordan. And, and it talks about where they are at, their physical location. That's, you know, taking place at the end of a book that's all about travel sequence. And the beginning of Deuteronomy picks back up and saying, well, here they are beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in between all of these cities which are all mentioned in Numbers. And in verse 2, where we want to pick up, if you have your Bibles, 
Um, you can read it verse 2. And it says, It is 11 days journey from Horeb, by the way of Mount Seir, to Kadesh Barnea. And so we know that the people have taken, you know, 40 years in the wilderness. And it's 11 days journey, at least this leg. And so we're thinking like, wow, that's such a bummer that the people made it take so much longer. But I want to zoom in really quick on what exactly is this starting point. Dylan, where is their starting point? What is, or maybe I should say, where is Horeb? Where is Horeb? That's a great question. I don't necessarily know if my snarky answer is the answer you were looking for, so I'll leave that out. But we talked about this already when we were talking about Exodus. Exodus chapter 3 talks about Mount Horeb, and it specifically says, it's God talking to Moses, that the goal for the Israelites once they leave Egypt in the Exodus was to get to this mountain Horeb and worship on top of it. Well, we later learn that the mountain they end up going to is Mount Sinai. So we have to ask the question, did they go to the wrong mountain? And the answer is actually no. Horeb is Mount Sinai. They're synonymous. They're the same place. And so we are starting out at Mount Sinai. Yeah, thank you. So what we have coming out of this as we get into the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to see a intention by the author to show us the mood of the writing. So in the book of Deuteronomy, we have a very low view of the people of Israel. And so when Horeb is used, it's usually going to emphasize the failures of the covenant people. But when Sinai is used, it's going to emphasize the God the creator God who comes down to make a covenant with the people. So Sinai, Horeb, the same mountain, but as far as a theological truth, Horeb, yeah, it tells us that the people are bad. This is where they disobeyed. Sinai, oh, this is an amazing place where God came down to meet his people. And so very, you know, interesting. Right away, we're, we're supposed to keep up with the places that the people have gone, and, you know, why Moses would use a different name for the mountain here, as opposed to how he often used at the end of Exodus and in Numbers. And so let's skip down just a little bit, just to verse 5. And still in chapter 1, it says, Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, the Hebrew word, for law there is Torah, something we've some word we've been throwing around a lot, and I've already said it a lot in this episode. And it begs the question, what is Torah? Well, if you look at verse 6, it says, Then Yahweh our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. And it keeps going on for like a long time of just stories. It's just recap of what we've read in Exodus and Numbers. Well, if you go down to verse 9, well, at that time I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. That's uh, Moses talking. We know that's still narrative. It's still story. As a matter of fact, this talking about Moses explaining the Torah and it being story will last all the way through chapter 1 
and it won't change at all until we get to chapter four. Okay, and still we'll, we'll still see a lot of story taking place. And so, like right at the beginning of Deuteronomy, we have to face this word Torah, which is going to be translated as law in many translations, and say, well, what is law? Law, by Moses' account and the Lord's account, law is not just commandments, but it's also story. And so we've been reading through these first five books of the Bible, and it has been mostly story, more story than commandments so far. And so the, uh, this passage here in Deuteronomy only helps to really solidify a good, healthy idea of what Torah means. So Torah is this mix of God teaching the people through story, or what we'll see later on being called testimonies, and also rules and commandments. In fact, the phrase commandments, rules, and testimonies is going to be used a whole lot in just this section of Deuteronomy. Dylan, before we go on and pass the subject of Torah, anything you want to add here? Um, I mean, as far as the topic of Torah goes, I would probably add that we have touched on this idea quite extensively in the past as well. And we've pointed out that the best translation in, in, into English of this word is instruction, not necessarily like judicial law. When we think of law in English, we think of a gavel and a judge and guilty or not guilty. That's not really what we're thinking of here. With the idea of instruction comes not just the commands that are given, but also the story for how God relates to his people. What can we learn about who God is from the story itself? What can we learn about what to do, what not to do, how to behave, etc.? How can we learn about loving this God, about what he has revealed about himself? All of that plays into God's instruction. And so, uh, like Corey said, it's not simply the commands that are law. The whole first five books of the Bible are called Torah, including something like, say, Genesis. Genesis has no law code in it. The whole thing is narrative. It's all story. But yet, it is still instruction. So, it's kind of the idea there. One thing, though, uh, passing up on this idea of Torah that I want to ask is, in chapter 1, we've already established that a lot of this is kind of a recap of what we've already gone over. And one place where this is definitely the case is in verse 22 of chapter one. But I have a question for Corey. So Corey, in verse 22, it says something like this. Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up to the cities into which we shall come. And in essence, just in case you aren't familiar, this passage is talking about the time in which the people sent spies into the land. We've already talked about that, where they send spies into the land, the spies come back and say, hey, we shouldn't go in. It's scary. But in the original, that's in uh, Numbers, it says that God tells them to send spies. Now, all of a sudden here, it seems to be that the people decide. So, Corey, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, it's really interesting. And so this is the first place where we put that theory I was talking about of wisdom literature. It takes a story, perhaps makes a change to it and see if we catch the difference. And we have to use wisdom. 
well, what do we make of this? So like Dylan said, back in Numbers chapter 13, God told the people, go ahead and send 12 spies and they can go and check out that land and bring back a report for you. But once we get to the recounting of this in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19, and as Dylan said, verses 22 and 23, Yahweh blames that the people asked for this thing. And so what's really interesting about this is that it seems like Deuteronomy is painting a worse picture of the Israelites than Numbers did. And Numbers painted the Israelites very, very poorly, right? And so what we're seeing, though, is that Numbers is, was kind of taking the blow back from the people's responsibility a little bit. But Deuteronomy is just kind of letting us more into, oh, they're at Horeb. Theologically, this means that Israel done messed up, bad place. And now we see we, we go a little bit further in the text. Oh, so, yeah, Israel's being blamed for the idea of the spies. And then this idea was good in Moses's eyes. So not only do the people want to send spies because they can't just straight up take Yahweh's word for it. Moses himself, he doesn't ask Yahweh, but it's his good in his eyes. And so we're going to see a lot of back and forth as we already have, you know, what's good in the eyes of humans and what's good in the eyes of Yahweh. And so here the people come up with this idea and they bring back the bad report, right? And so all that to say, these books are going to test us a little bit, especially Deuteronomy. And again, any book that is wisdom literature, it makes the reader use biblical wisdom into trying to interpret, well, this is different from the last story. So which one is correct? And so it's not like, well, Numbers was wrong and Deuteronomy was right, or Deuteronomy is right, or Deuteronomy is wrong, Numbers is right. Um, it's trying to get across different teachings. Remember, Torah is instruction, and this word is trying to instruct us. And so Deuteronomy starts off right away. The people are despicable, very evil in Yahweh's sight. In fact, far worse than what we have let on in the book of Numbers, a book that was already all about the iniquities of the people. And so why is there that change? We can't really speak as to why God says one thing one way and you know not another. However, there is just this emphasis that is being brought up here. We already know how bad it was. Well, did you know that it was actually worse than you originally thought? And so out of that, we see that in verse 34 of chapter 1, there is a penalty for the rebellion of the people. And in verse 35, Yahweh says, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his, and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed Yahweh. Even with me, Yahweh was angry on your account and said, You shall not go in there. And so Moses was talking about his self being not able to go in there. 
And it continues in verse 38. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. So, you know, we already knew this. We already knew that the people were forbidden. We already knew that Moses later gets forbidden. We already know that Joshua and Caleb get to go in. But it's really cool that we start seeing this idea that Moses and Yahweh want the people to be encouraging Joshua. And so just watch, you know, throughout this book, how Joshua is talked about. Because we already know, we learned in Deuteronomy, that Joshua is going to be the one who becomes the new leader to succeed Moses. And so from the very get-go in Deuteronomy, we see that, okay, the people have this duty of encouraging Joshua to take on this duty. Because it seems like a, a really hard responsibility. Moses had such a hard time with it. Right. And so speaking of, you know, the people being forbidden to enter the land and especially Moses being forbidden to enter the land. Let's go down to chapter three. So we're going to skip chapter two. Chapter two is just a lot of um, wilderness years and overtaking of different kings and nations that Yahweh had already allowed them to defeat. And so towards the middle-ish end-ish of Chapter 3, we have Moses being forbidden to enter the land. Now, we have another contradiction here, right, Dylan? So, what is the contradiction with Moses being forbidden to enter the land in Deuteronomy as compared to Numbers? I don't know if contradiction is necessarily the correct term, but it is still nonetheless really odd in this respect that in Deuteronomy chapter 3, Verse 23 in particular, it says this, And I pleaded with the Lord at the time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven and on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, the good hill country in Lebanon. But Yahweh was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. And so... I guess contradiction could work. It's uh, Yeah, so in Numbers, we've already established that the people were wicked, right? So much so to the point where even the people's leader was shown to be wicked. That is Moses, right? Where God tells him to do something in particular, and he does something that isn't that thing that God said to do. So God says, go speak to this rock, and out from it will come water. And Moses, instead of going and speaking to the rock as God commands, goes and smacks the rock with a stick. And so as a result of this rebellion, he is forbidden from going into the promised land. Now, all of a sudden, you have Moses blaming the people for his rebellion. So it kind of paints Moses as the martyr, saying, I, Moses, pleaded with the Lord at the time, saying, Oh, Lord, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. He wants to go into the promised land. He says, Please let me go into the promised land across the Jordan. But Yahweh was angry with me because of you. Well, it wasn't because of the people. God didn't say, I'm punishing you, Moses, because these people are terrible. No, he says, Moses, I'm punishing you because you also along with the people, failed to keep my commands. So a real interesting thing for sure. So, yeah, 
I guess classic blame shifting would be the best call on this one here. Yeah, Corey, what do you think about that? Anything? Yeah, it's odd. <laughs> no, but I, I agree with what you said. It's not too far from the truth, but a bit of a contradiction. Moses is painting a bit of a better light here where the people are painted really, really poorly. So the camp of the Israelite people so far in Deuteronomy are really terrible. They made their great leader Moses to sin. And again, it's not like a, a straight up lie, right? But yeah, it's, it's just quite different. But let's keep going. And let's go into chapter four. And so the first three chapters deal with the story. And so Torah as story. Now, chapter four, it, it kind of shifts a bit. And so, I mean, you can see in the first line of chapter four where Moses says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is given you. And from there, he says, you know, do not add to the words I command you. Do not take away from the words I'm commanding you. Keep the words I'm commanding you. And it, it will continue to go on from now until the end of this section, chapter 11. And really from now until the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is not trying to instruct anything new per se. Instead, it's, hey, you guys know what to do, so do it. It's this great urging, like, please just do what is right in Yahweh's eyes. Please do not do what's evil in Yahweh's eyes. It's this great pleading for. And so we see this really cool idea that if the people obey, God's going to bless them. Right? They're going to get the land. It's going to go well in the land. And the people around them, if you go down to verses 6 through 8, you know, Moses says, you know, keep them and do them. This will be your wisdom. This will be your understanding in the sight of the peoples around you. And Moses starts talking for the people around them. And for the nations, Moses says, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And so we have Moses making this claim, well, you should you know, follow these laws, you should follow these instructions, this teaching, so that you'll be blessed by God. You should follow this for what other people will say about you, because it's something of great wisdom and understanding that God has given you today. And so we're going to continue to see talk like this, this great urging that this is so important for you to follow. It's basically life or death. Right? And so one of the first things that Moses gets into is the, the first bit of commandments or law code is down in 15, verse 15 of chapter 4. And he tells the people to be aware to not make any carved images. Do not make any idols. And the reason that they should not make any idols is because God did not appear to you. Right? You saw no form on the day that Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb. Oh, Horeb, yeah, that was a, a bad day for you people. 
but yet you saw no form. So since you saw no form, do not make any form. Like, hmm, you know what would be a bad idea? If you were to make a golden image out of some animal, maybe even something like a cow, and tell the people, hey, you guys, this is Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt. That would be extremely terrible. In fact, that's what Aaron the high priest did. Do not do that. Do not call it Yahweh. Do not even go after any other God that has some form. You've, you know the true God. You heard his voice, but you saw no form. So because you've seen no form, therefore make no form. And other reasons why you should not do this thing. Moses will continually say, hey, you know, this is God's instructions, or here's a commandment laid out before you. And essentially, here's why you should follow. Here's why you should listen, which reads a lot like Proverbs. The first nine or so chapters of Proverbs is basically, hey, wisdom's a really good thing. You should be wise. It's like, how do, how do I know to be wise? They haven't even told me how to be wise yet. And so that's what Deuteronomy is kind of being like in this work of wisdom. And so he says, hey, don't make any formed images. Here's why. But also, in addition to that, don't make any images or bow down to anything else because your God is a jealous God. He's a consuming fire. That's in 424. Right? And then Moses, after he tells the people over and over, hey, do not make any foreign images. Do not bow down to them. In verse 26, Moses calls for some covenant witnesses, something we've seen before. He calls the covenant witnesses of essentially the, the first two things created in Scripture, the heavens and the earth. And so Moses says, I call heaven and earth before you today to essentially watch if you're going to make this covenant work out or not. And essentially says, yeah, you guys aren't going to do it. So just know that the heaven and earth is watching you so that when you sin, you are always being seen. And it's kind of interesting, too, that's in the same breath of um, do not you know, have any idols because you saw God who has no form. And so using that logic, hey, you know that God is spirit and he has no form. So you might be tempted to say, well, you know, no one's really watching me. I don't see anyone around me. Well, you do have God's creation, something that was there before you, something that will be here long after you. The heavens and the earth, they are watching. If you need something physical to look at, to represent God, they are his witnesses. So be careful to do these things because he's always watching. Right? Um, anything else to add to this command here, this section, Dylan? I mean, realistically, you hit that stuff all really well. Right on the head, I agree with everything that you said. did think that it's really important that you pointed out the idea that, first and foremost, God has no form. He is formless. So do not create something that has a form to represent this God. God cannot be represented by something that's created. He is himself separate from it. And secondly... The idea of the covenant witnesses is definitely a really good thing to bring out the fact that uh, he's not calling a person to witness this. He's calling all of creation to act as a witness to this. And then finally, kind of at the end here in 32 on, we get this idea that God alone is 
God, that there isn't anyone else, there isn't anything else. God is God himself, and there is nothing else that is God. There's others that have their quote-unquote gods, but they're unseeing, etc. And so towards the end then, verses 44 and 45, we read this. This is still in chapter 4. It says, This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, the rules, which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Shion, the king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. So we're introducing the idea of the law itself and the location in which it's being given. And so in essence, what we have here is kind of the the introduction to what is going to follow. So first off, we get the law that is going to follow. So we got the uh, recap of everything that's happened. And now what we're doing is we've taken over a few towns and cities opposite the Jordan. So we have not yet entered the land. We know that from numbers. Also remember in numbers that there were a few tribes that decided, hey, you know what? Life is pretty good on this side of the Jordan and asked to stay, and then were rebuked for it. They need to help all of Israel go over the Jordan and take the land. That's what God commands. Now, what Moses is doing as a guy who is unable to go into the land with his people, with the people that he's been leading, he says, okay, guys, I am going to be leaving you, in essence. So here is what God says. Hear it again and follow it. Because remember, in Exodus, when the people first made had the covenant made with them with God, Exodus 19 and 20, ironically, the people, Moses sprinkles the blood on them, and the people go, we will do everything that Yahweh says, which is hilarious, because not 10 chapters later, they're making a cow. And then after they make the cow... They send the spies into the land and then say, you know what? Maybe God isn't with us. All these miracles that we've seen and whatnot, maybe he can't help us take the land. And they stay out of the land. And then they have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation all dies off before they're finally able to go into the land. So basically now Moses is saying, you've already blown it. So here's what you need to do. Now that you're about to take the land, follow God's instructions. And so that's kind of where the introduction leaves us into the section dealing now with the law. And chapter 5 is going to go right back into the 10 words that we got from Exodus chapter 20. So that was the first time we got the 10 words. We're going to get the 10 words yet again. That's where the law code starts. And so that is a natural starting point for Moses now in the second retelling of the law. But before we get there, Corey, anything else that we wanted to cover there? Yeah, as we go into this retelling of the Ten Commandments, um, notice we're going back in time. So the Ten Commandments, this happened at Sinai. So by the time we were towards the end of chapter one of Deuteronomy, we were already at you know the report of the 12 spies and Moses not being allowed to go in the land. So Deuteronomy is, is not like numbers in the sense that it goes chronologically and it's based on traveling and story. This is going differently. This is just got a totally different type of teaching to it. This is a different type of instruction. Still Torah is just being done differently. So we're going back to a retelling 
of the Ten Commandments. And when Moses summons all the people in chapter 5, he is on Horeb. He's saying, all right, this is the covenant that Yahweh made at Horeb. And there we have the Ten Commandments, just as we saw them when we went through it in Exodus chapter 20. Slightly different wording in some places. But what we want to look at is after the Ten Commandments, just like in Exodus chapter 20, there is this uh, response from Yahweh to the people not coming up the mountain. And so it says, these are the words Yahweh spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added, no more. Right? And so as out of this great fire, if we remember that the people were scared. Right? And so in verse 24, Moses says, And you said, Behold, Yahweh our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? Wait a minute, what? <laughs> we saw Yahweh speak with man, and man live. Yeah, but why is he trying to kill us? <laughs> it doesn't quite make sense. But the people are scared, right? And continuing in where I left off in verse 25, For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of Yahweh our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that Yahweh our God will say and speak to us all that Yahweh our God will speak to you. And we will hear and do it. And we remember this. Yeah. And we, we kind of laughed when the people said they will do it because by not going up the mountain, they're disobeying what God said. Exodus 19. Hey, come up the mountain, all of you. Come up onto the mountain on the third day after the trumpet blasts and meet with me there. And so, hey, just go up for us. We're going to disobey this time, but we will listen to everything else. And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. We know how it went. They didn't. And in the future, we know that they won't. But God says something really interesting. Yahweh responds in verse 28. He says, you know, I... I have heard all the words that the people have spoken to you. And God says they are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. And so here Yahweh is commending the people. Oh, yeah, they are right. This Hebrew word, this is the same Hebrew word for good, uh, tov. So really quick. In Hebrew and in English, good doesn't always mean like morally good. Hey, you made the right decision. Or sometimes it's like, ah, you know, I didn't really want that for dinner. But I'm just going to say that sounds good because I don't want to, you know, shake things up in my relationship. I'm just going to be happy and content with whatever my wife makes. I say, you know, that sounds good. This is in no way talking about my wife's cooking. She's an excellent cook. Don't ever tell her I'm complaining, anyone listening to this. 
but so it doesn't have this great moral weight to it as we might want to put to it. Oh, they are good or they are right in what they have spoken. And for Yahweh commending their heart, I think that's different than saying Yahweh is commending their disobedience. Okay, so Yahweh sees something in that they really fear Yahweh and realize how powerful he is. He says, yes, that is something good. I wish they would always fear me. But if you say that, oh, then it was, you know, right for them to do this. Well, then you're saying that Yahweh is tempting them to fall into utter destruction by Yahweh's own hand. I mean, if Yahweh were to do that, he would just do it straight up. He has no need to hide and say, oh, I'm going to get them to fall into my trap. He doesn't need a trap for them. All right, we already seen God be so faithful and save them over and over. So, you know, that just doesn't quite make sense logically to say, oh, yeah, you know, it's good that they didn't fall into Yahweh's trap. God does not tempt people. He is not trying to test them. But he does commend that at this one time, they have fear of him and realize that Yahweh is powerful. And so anytime, you know, we tell people, Dylan and I have both experienced this a lot, either with individuals or in studies, like, well, what about when God says here, it's right. It, it wasn't, it's never good to disobey God. But yet God's finding a silver lining. Well, at least they're starting to see that I'm a powerful God. <laughs> and so that's kind of good, right? So that's kind of good, but it's still not the best thing. We see that because of the people's disobedience, God then gives commandments. So the commandments are given to transgressors, where God seems to have something different, something that looks like you know more natural relationship if the people had gone up the mountain. Right? Then anything to add on with the people's uh, response and God's response to the people here? This word for right, maybe the only thing I'd add you already got there with the idea that this isn't really more of a moralistic right or moralistic good. It's more of uh, probably a better way to translate it would be successful. That's kind of the idea. So they were successful in in what they spoke, meaning that they said we're afraid. And God says, yes, you're successful in being afraid because you're right. I am scary. But that wasn't the point. The point was more so you're not morally correct in this. You, you're right in the respect that I am what you say, and you're right to be afraid, but, but that doesn't mean that you are morally okay and justified to not come up this mountain. So, yeah, that's, that's uh, good stuff there. So let's keep rolling from the look of things. Uh, well, we'll probably stop at Chapter 6, but let's, uh, let's keep rolling because Chapter 6 is a, a really interesting chapter. It's one of my probably personal favorite chapters in the entire Bible. And so chapter six is one that is going to be referenced consistently throughout the scriptures all the way into actually Jesus talking about something that comes from this chapter. So in chapter six, it says, now this is the command, the statutes and the rules that Yahweh your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear Yahweh your God, you and your sons and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commands, which I command you all the days of your life 
and that your days may be long. So basically, like we've already said, the purpose behind this is this is a retelling of the law so that you can hear them, so that you can keep them, you, your sons, your sons, sons, all of you, so that you can keep it for generations. That is the goal. Now we get into one of the most famous passages in the Torah, and that is verse 3 and on. It says this. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this passage right here is one of the most famous among all of the Torah. It's quoted by Jesus himself. And from verse 4 on, it's called the Shema. And the reason it's called Shema is because in Hebrew— Verse 4, that word here in English, that is the word Shema. So just like pretty much all Hebrew naming, they name it after the first word in the section. And so really interestingly, this word Shema is a very interesting uh, word to study because it doesn't just mean like sound waves entering into your ears as the word here does in English, but it actually has kind of a twofold sort of an idea behind it. So there's the idea of listen to it, but in addition to listening to it, there's also kind of an action implicit in the word, meaning that it's more than just listen to it. It's listen to it and actually do something about it. In this case, obey it. So listen and obey. So that's it. When you say it to yourself, just say, listen and obey, O Israel. Yahweh your God, Yahweh is One, he alone is your God. We've already talked about idols. We've already talked about how there's no others. Your God is Yahweh and Yahweh alone is the idea there. And then moving on into verse five, you shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Every single thing that you are should be devoted to the love of Yahweh. Yahweh is your God. You must, as a people and as individuals, love Yahweh. Finally, in verse 6, and then these words which I command to you today shall be on your hearts. That's going to be really a big thing because we're going to get into how the people have hard hearts and don't actually keep Yahweh's commands on their hearts. So we'll see that at the end of the book in chapter 30. We'll see a lot of allusion to that as we go through the book. The idea that they need something to actually help them keep this on their heart. They cannot do it themselves. And then verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And not just teach them diligently. These things are so important that you should do all of these things to make sure they are always on your mind. Write them on your hand. Write them on your doorpost. Have them constantly all around you. No God's commands so that you can love Yahweh. And remember, this passage is famously quoted by Jesus when he's asked, good teacher, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to love Yahweh with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commands hang all of the law and the prophets. So basically, Jesus sums up all of this big section of scripture, the Torah, as well as the next section in the Old Testament, the prophets. He sums up all of that with love Yahweh, love others. All of the instruction are given so that the people will love Yahweh. And likewise, all of the instruction are given so that in loving Yahweh, the people will also love one another. They are Yahweh's special creation. They'll love each other, and they'll love Yahweh and be God's people. So that's why this is such a big thing. Hear this and obey it, Israel. Know that God is your God. He is the only one that is your God. Love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So that's really the heart of what is being pushed, not just in Deuteronomy chapter 6, but you can really summarize all of Deuteronomy with that. Later on in the book, when we get to the idea where Moses says, I'm putting before you life and death, you know, if you choose to keep God's instruction, you choose life. And if you don't, you choose death. And the choice is yours. You're going to choose death, but please choose life. And he pleads with them. The whole book is really about this idea, choose to love Yahweh. And how do you love Yahweh? You keep his commands. How do you keep his commands? You love Yahweh. Actually, Paul sums that up in Romans when he says he loves, keeps the law. The whole idea of keeping God's instruction is loving God. And so that's really what this whole whole section, section is about. And it's actually been appropriated into a, uh, a Hebrew prayer called the, the Shema prayer, which even in Judaism today, they still recite it. Shema Yisrael Yahweh, Eloheinu Yahweh Echad. It's really a cool, cool thing to consistently remind yourself of. So anyway, Corey, anything else on that before we keep moving on? Yeah. I mean, since we are going to stop at chapter six, this is a I don't know, a safe place to camp on because it's so important. It's so important theologically to the entire Bible, but also very important to the book of Deuteronomy. Love is so important to the book of Deuteronomy. And you might be thinking, wow, the book that's called Second Law is about love. Yes, absolutely, yes. So we've been talking about how in Deuteronomy, Moses is trying to urge the people to follow these instructions and to remember the testimonies. So you get wisdom by remembering what God has done and by obeying Shema-ing the Torah, right? And so we're going to see a whole lot of love. This is one of the, the first places that we're seeing it. The first place that this Hebrew word for love, ahav, comes up is actually um, in chapter 4, right? It's because Yahweh loved you that he saved you out of Egypt. So in chapter 6, there's this first command that you shall love. And so all of Deuteronomy is in many different ways trying to command the people to love God and love their neighbor, as we saw in Leviticus chapter 19. And so it's just so big to the book of Deuteronomy. Like I said, it's, this word is mentioned 22 times throughout the book. And there's other words for love that are used throughout Deuteronomy. We'll, we'll get through some of those word studies when we get to those passages. We haven't hit one yet that we wanted to talk about yet. But love in Deuteronomy is so important. Also, that, that word here, Shema, that's used about... 1100 times throughout the Bible. It's mostly used 
to like hear. And then it's also used to say listen. And it's also used over a hundred times to say obey. So it's used in so many different ways, as Dylan kind of said, but it kind of helps for me to like hear different uses of it throughout the Bible. Yeah, so hear, listen, obey. And also what we see from this Shema is that you're also expected to teach it. Right. So do whatever you need to do to remember it, you know, put it like between your eyes, put it on your hands. And of course, we, you know, as Christians read this and say, oh, yeah, it's probably more figuratively. Right. I mean, actually do them if it helps. And then we um, laugh as Jesus makes fun of the Pharisees for putting, you know, these big blocks of wood on their foreheads. It's like, yeah, you guys put these big phylacteries on your foreheads to seem righteous, but morally you're corrupt. And we see, like, come on, you guys, it's so obviously about the heart of things. We're going to see Deuteronomy focus a bunch on the heart. We already see it here. Love the Lord, the Lord your God with all your heart. And so we're, we're going to see lots of ways in scriptures to come where we as Christians are really guilty of taking things way too literal, such as the mark of the beast, which is actually pointing to the Shema here. Oh, have the mark on your forehead and on your hands. Well, that's where you're supposed to have God's instructions. You're supposed to think about them and do them. But yet we want to get all literal with, you know, the number 666 and microchips and all that. So, you know, don't make the same mistake that the Jews did with the Shema. It's just about having God always on your mind and being God's hands and his feet. I want to juxtapose the beginning of chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, and jump down to the end. I want to go down to verses 24 and 25. Uh, these are the last two verses of chapter 6. And it says, Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes to fear Yahweh our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us. If we are careful to do all this commandment before Yahweh our God, as he has commanded us. All right, so from the beginning of chapter 6 to the end of chapter 6, we see um, the people are asked to love God. And loving God looks a lot like listening and obeying Yahweh's commandments and also teaching them. At the end of chapter 6, it says, hey, fear Yahweh. Well, what does fearing Yahweh look like? Well, it looks like listening and obeying to all that Yahweh says. And then it's trying to bring us back to this idea, well, you're also going to pass these lessons down and teach them. So fearing Yahweh and loving Yahweh should have the same results to follow his ways and instruct others, especially your children, your family, to follow his ways, right? And all of in between the Shema and those last two verses we read, and this is mentioned over and over, you know, diligently keep the commandments and the testimonies and the statutes that Yahweh your God has commanded you. Right? So it's all fearing Yahweh, loving Yahweh, it all comes back down to this. Just follow him. Just love him. Just whatever it takes to listen. Fear him or love him, it's all going to look like a life submitted before him, right? And this will be righteousness for you if you just walk in this humble love and fear with your creator, God. Right? 
Um, Dylan, anything else with that? No, honestly, I think that that's a good place to stop. We covered a ton in chapter six. Chapter six, like I said, is a very important chapter. Really does sum up not just Deuteronomy, but I think that uh, honestly, within Deuteronomy chapter six, you can find a thesis for the Torah as a whole. So we'll go ahead and put a pin in it there. Didn't get all the way through chapter 11 like we had hoped. Not that I had a heck of a lot of expectation that we would, again, knowing how much Corey and I like to chat. But uh, nonetheless, next week, then we will be going over chapters seven through 11 and we'll wrap that section up. So join us then. Otherwise, thank you guys for tuning into the show today. We hope you guys enjoyed it. If you guys do enjoy the show, uh, please do leave a review wherever you listen. That really does help out the show, gets it into other people's hands, helps out the algorithm, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, We have a website, bibleasastory.com. Check it out. Blogs, everything over there. Also, if you guys would like to email like I said, email address is scripturechronicles at gmail.com. Finally, if you guys would like to donate, you can do that on the website as well. It helps out the show. Other than that, guys, thank you so much for tuning into the show. As I've already said like seven times, with that, shalom. Adios. Adios.